love yourself every day. Make it a priority to love something about yourself every day. And once you do it without the ego, with the ego out of the way, once you do it, you just have more love to give everybody else. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast. And today we have Natalie Culkins Roundtree joining us on the show. Natalie's story serves as a cautionary tale to all mothers that are out there listening. At the end of her using career, Natalie ended up with three DUIs, two felonies, and her daughter was taken away from her due to child endangerment. Today, Natalie has eight years sober and is an advocate for bringing awareness to the pain and struggles of women, mothers, and others who are battling with addiction. She is the founder of Sober Living, Soulful Living. Her mission is to reach as many people as she can in hopes of inspiring others to not just recover, but to help them love themselves and life all over again. Her life is nothing short of a miracle. So let's dive into Natalie's story, but first, a little Share Podcast news. Okay, guys, another quick reminder that I will be at the Seattle International Narcotics Anonymous Convention this year, July 29th, 30th, and 31st. 2016. It will be held at the Seattle Airport Marriott, and I will be the main speaker on Friday night opening up the convention. If you go to the Share Podcast website, on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a banner. It's a blue banner that says SINAC 2016. Click on that banner. It'll send you to the page where you have information about room rates, about registering for the convention. Everything you need to know about attending the convention is right on that website. So again, I would love to meet you guys in person. If you can make it out there, would love to see you. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. 
You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more. And it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the Join the Facebook Private Group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook Private Group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old-timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use Sober Grid or are looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for Share Podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says alumni group, click on add group and type in S-H-A-I-R and the Share Podcast alumni group will pop right up. And for those of you who would like to know which are the most popular podcast episodes, there is a banner on the right hand side of the page as you scroll down that says most popular podcast episodes. Click on that banner and it will take you to the page that features the most popular podcast episodes based on listener feedback and number of downloads. And for those of you who would like a list of all the books that have been recommended by our guests, go to the right-hand side of the website and click on the banner that says Recommended Books. It'll take you right to the page where we have a list of all the recommended books. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast, Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E., who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode, Omar Hernandez, that does all the social media cover art, and Krista Wojo, who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there's no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So let's dive into this week's episode. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to 
dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Natalie, thanks for joining us. Hi, all. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling excited. I've been looking forward to uh, doing this podcast with you all. Excellent. Me too. So let's get started. So folks, today we have Natalie Calkins Roundtree joining us on the Share Podcast. Natalie is the founder of Sober Living, Soulful Living. She's a writer, a blogger, sober coach, recovery coach, public speaker. Oh my. So Natalie, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today, what you do in your normal daily life, because it looks like it's probably a lot of stuff. So how do you manage your routine and include recovery? Oh, it's actually become, my recovery has been so much more manageable and fun uh, now since I started this new journey um, the past, the last August, uh, what I had done was, you know, I was working in the corporate world and I was making very good money, but I was seven years sober and miserable. Right. And what I realized was it didn't matter the things that I had, the things that I could buy, the places that I could go. There was something that was missing deep inside and I really couldn't pinpoint it. You know, I it just the the shopping, you know, would make me happy for a while. The going places would make me happy for a while. The gym would make me feel great for a while. But that that stress and that anxiety and really something just not sitting right uh, within me uh, let me know that I wasn't on the path I was supposed to be on. And once I quit the corporate world, just really just on a whim, had no backup <laughs> plan, but I... I, I did honestly, um, over the summer, I went into some really deep guided meditation and I, I knew this was my journey. So I quit. And what I do now is I, I wake up every day. I typically try to set aside some time for some, just to wake up on my, on my own pace, do a little meditation, do some gratitude thinking and start my day. And my day usually starts out with a little workout and then I get right on the computer and I, I do writing, I do blogging, I do podcast and I run my website and my Facebook page all related to helping other people in recovery. And I do speaking engagements as well. And it's, Amazing. I've, I've never been, never been happier. Wow. You know what it sounds like though? It sounds like even though you had seven years sober, you were still trying to fill that void, that hole that once you filled with alcohol and drugs, possibly with stuff, with retail therapy, with the outside, you know, trying to get the outside to fill that void on the inside and you realize that it wasn't going to ever happen, right? I, I absolutely did. I absolutely did. And I think that many of us who don't even have a problem with alcohol or drugs, I think so many of us are addicted to things, whether it be uh, computers, Facebook, uh, Candy Crush, shopping, sex, <laughs> whatever it may be. 
that we do to fill something that's missing. And when I realized that, that's when I really started to try to dig deep. Well, what is it? What am I what am I trying to fill? Because this can't be what life is all about. And when I once I came out of it and looked back, I was really quite embarrassed, you know. And when I <laughs> when I say candy crush, I mean that was my that was my escape. When I get home from work and I'm all stressed out and after dinner's made and everything's done, I would go right to that damn game and I'm I'm spending money on it before I learned that I could just change the time. <laughs> You know, and then, and then the shopping, I would go shopping. And I remember, I recall last year, my husband and I went to the store and I left with nine Michael Kors purses. What? Yes. Well, my husband was joking around because I grabbed two or three and I put them in the, I was just, you know, walking around with them because I couldn't decide what color I wanted. And he came around the corner and had six more. Like he was joking. And I grabbed them all, and I was like, ah, well, how, why not? We got home, and I I was instantly upset. And I didn't take them back. I hung them on my wall. Yeah. And, And I'm looking around, and at that time, I'm looking around at all the clothes I had bought and didn't wear and all these things. It's just just ridiculous. All this stuff, it didn't, there was no long term bliss. There was no long-term serenity. It was just something to make me feel happy in the moment. So I realized that there was, there was so much more missing. That's incredible. You know, what's funny is it's probably why uh, you connected so much with, with my wife. Uh, yes. Just to give you, listeners, just to give you an idea, Natalie reached out to me because she'd heard the episode uh, on meditation uh, with my wife and uh, it was one of the recorded blah meetings. And she connected a lot with Marcella. So now I get it because, you know, my wife's been working for a bank now for 20 years and she knows that there's something else out there that she should be doing, that she could be doing to add passion and fulfillment into her life that is completely void in her current, current job. It, it trust me, it was scary. I was making almost six figures. And to quit, it, it's scary when you don't have a backup plan. But I thought, am I gonna live the rest of my life coming home angry and and bitter and resentful it, to where the job was changing me? I wasn't myself at that job anymore. Right. And I started being more negative. I started, uh, really, I, I found myself getting into the gossipy circles and coming home and being so worn out mentally and emotionally that help me, me, my husband and I put up a fence, a big white vinyl fence, the tallest one we could buy just so we didn't have to talk to neighbors when we got home. And that's not who we are. We worked at the same place. Right. And that's not who we are. We're very sociable, down-to-earth people. But when you wouldn't have thought that when you met us outside of work when we were working there, it's not worth it. So when Marcella was speaking, it was like she was she and I were the same. Um, it was coming from the same place. And when sometimes you know, like it's it's ironic that I actually had to dig to find out what it was. I kind of knew in the back of my mind I always wanted to write a book to help people, but I never knew how deep 
in how far I wanted to go with this. But the second I thought of it, the inside of me, it was like my soul just started dancing. And (laughs) I could not ignore that feeling. I knew. I knew. And then, you know, we, we pick up on, on so many signs in our life or, or it, maybe it's people call it intuition or coincidences. There's so many things that happen in our life that keep pointing us to the path that mm, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be doing. And we suppress it because uh, I don't have time for that or I can't afford to do that, or I won't be good enough, or people won't like me, or what if I fail, or I'll think about that later, and then later never comes. So at 42 years old, with the tools that I have and the holes that I've come out of, I, I, I couldn't go another day without helping other people get to where I am now with sharing the tools that I use. Or even just my story alone to give hope and, and inspiration. So, so now that we've kind of we're all jacked up here, I feel like I had <laughs> right? I feel like I had three cups of coffee. So this is I'm ready, I'm ready. So let's <laughs> let's let's just dive in here. I know that we connected on the meditation side. So right. I I want you to tell us about what you do on a regular basis to maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? My conscious contact with my higher power is actually through the meditation in the first, first and foremost, but then it's just living right. It's, I have to take inventory constantly. And that is so important. Um, Taking an inventory on the way that we speak to one another, the, our every action. And I'm not too hard on myself. We all make mistakes. We all say things we wish we wouldn't have said. I've even posted things that I've taken down minutes later. Like, <laughs> oh, don't go there. The first thing that will, will set me off in, in where I know I'm going down the wrong path is if I do something or say something and I feel bad about it. So I'm constantly checking myself through that. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of reading. Uh, Jack Canfield, the big book, I haven't read in some time. I go to meetings. I'll speak at meetings. Not as much as I used to go. But I don't go to anywhere where there's drinking. I, st- I stay. I'm, my husband and I are hermits. We barely leave the house at night. <laughs> because why would I? Why would I go to um, parties or engagements where people are, you know, we've done it if people were, uh, if it was work related when we were working, but I just don't. And I'll tell you something. Oh, this, these past, I would say since November has been some of the most trying months I've had to go through since my own uh, dilemma over the years the personal ones that I created, but there, they have been some very, very tragic times in my life in the past several months. I can tell you right now that I don't think I would have made it through those downfalls and tragedies like I had, if I had not been doing what I'm doing now. And that's just, just helping other people because there were times where I 
really thought that I was going to go into a, a, a real depressed state. And I thought, no, there's people waiting on me. There's people counting on me. And then the second that I get to my computer or my writing, uh, it's gone. And I'm fresh again and I'm free again. And it's just, you get what you give. You know, you give love, you get love back. You give, you send out positivity, you get positivity back. It, you send out the message and, and, and messages on recovery and, and inspirational things. You can't help but think it all day. It's true. You really can't. <laughs> the things that have happened going through them now, I, it's almost as if I, I've been preparing for it. Uh, the universe has been preparing me for it. And it started with this journey, like, you're, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. There's a lot of things that I do, I do in my everyday. Working out is, is one thing that I, I started early on in recovery and that, you know, exercise gives you those natural endorphins and really, really helps clear the mind and get rid of stress and anxiety. So there's quite a few things I do. It's hard to pinpoint it to one. It's it's really something that I work on all day. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone has a different way of connecting with their higher power. And that's why I asked the question, because as we as we get more clean time, as we get more as our foundation becomes more firm and more planted and it's something that we can count on, then we've already established a way of connecting that works for us. Yes. But in the beginning, we're lost. Praying, meditating, you know, uh, just finding a moment to, to be still, to look for the answers on the inside. It's all mumbo jumbo, woo woo stuff that in the beginning you cannot connect with. And those of us that have, have established clean time, we have these routines. So when I ask a question, you mm-hmm. know, and the newcomers are listening, they're like, Oh, I can do that. Or, or mm-hmm. let me try that. Or I can take the pressure off myself because, you know, I'm putting too much pressure on myself to come up with something. And it's not that complicated. It's not. And, and the thing is too, the pressure on this is, this is one thing that I did. Uh, this was a court appearance. For my daughter, when we were in a custody battle, and I know I'm jumping, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I just want to give you the the scenario of where we were. The judge asked, or the the prosecuting attorney asked me a question. He asked me about the steps. He was asking me about the steps in uh, AA um, making amends, and he said, "Well, did you make amends to this person right here?" And he pointed to my daughter's father. And I had been a year and a half into the program, and I said, "I don't rush my recovery. Don't you try to rush it." <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, who are, oh my god! Like, who are you to tell me how long, my, how where I should be at one point in my recovery? I was just proud I didn't drink that day, and, the, and that's one thing I learned that real quick. I did that right from the beginning because there was so much pressure from well what are you doing now? What have you done? How many meetings? How many this? How many that? I was going to meetings five times, five times a week then. And I was like, you know, everybody needs to slow down. I mean, obviously I'm not good at listening to rules. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can prove it, but don't, we don't have to rush ourselves. What, what's good for me and my, in my pace may not be good for someone else. And you, you hit the nail on the head. We're so lost in the beginning. I, even though, 
I had believed that there was a higher, higher power. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know what it was. So even though I surrendered, I had no clue who or what I was giving that control to who or what I was, I was letting everything go to or pray into. I grew up Catholic, but I, I questioned everything. You know, I started to, I lost faith in, right. in, 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 I was questioning every religion. I was lost for years in recovery. Yeah, I was sober. Yeah, I was praying. Yes, I had a higher power, but I didn't know who it was, what it was until I started really searching and seriously searching and did the disciplined, guided, it has to be very guided meditation. And I was like, ah, wow, wow. Some people don't need it. I did. I just happened to need it. But once I found what it was for me, it's life-changing. Nothing will ever be the same. Absolutely. Natalie, tell us how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? My anniversary date is May 8th, 2008. Almost eight years. So we're looking at seven years and 10 months, just around, a little over. Yeah, May's my anniversary too. So Is it? Yeah, I just interviewed somebody. My last interviewee was in May too. Crazy. That's wild. Lots of May. A lot of like oh, and a lot of people in December and January. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say that that's the that's the most common one. Yeah. It's for Valentine's like, Day. Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that's good. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then, um, Natalie, you're all warmed up. I'm just going to turn this show over to you now. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Natalie, take it away. Thanks, Oh, I want to start with the pain that actually caused me to turn to alcohol in the first place uh, was was quite a tragedy and it's it's something that I never shared with the public until really a couple weeks ago and the reason it took me so long to share it was because for so long I never wanted to share the story and also I never knew that it was the the catalyst that that pushed me into uh, severe depression and self-loathing and needing something to suppress that, that emotional pain. I was in my, I was 20 years old and I was in a relationship with an, with an older gentleman. He was only six years my senior, but at that age, it's a little bit older. And it was a great relationship in the beginning. It was a beautiful relationship and he became my everything and a little bit too much. To where, you know, we work together, we live together. I, I stopped seeing family. I stopped spending time with friends. He, he wasn't controlling in the beginning. It was just that that's how much we enjoyed being with each other. And a couple years into the relationship, it started to turn physical very quick. Uh, you know, it started with the verbal abuse, but then the physical abuse came fairly quick and he had, uh, we had a couple episodes where he had knocked me around pretty, pretty rough. And mm. as a young woman, I, I grew up very strong, very hard headed, very independent, very speak my mind kind of person. 
So being in this situation was not only uh, painful, but it was, I, I was ashamed. Right. And embarrassed. And, and he took away everything that I thought I was. So I, I, I held it in and I stayed with him, uh, just really not knowing where else to go. And it felt nobody else would want me. And that's how he made me feel and, and believe it. And it was after the, the second episode, uh, shortly after the second episode of uh, the abuse, I found out I was pregnant. Ooh. Yeah. And we, we were, we were happy at first, you know, in my mind, you always think you're like, those women think having a baby will, will save everything. I was one of those. Right. I thought this is going to turn them around. I mean, this was a guy who pampered me like you wouldn't believe in the beginning of the relationship for the first year and a half. You know, he'd wash my hair. He'd make me dinner in the middle of the night. He did all the cooking. He did all the cleaning. He did all the laundry. He would buy me things to no end. He was always surprising me. He treated me like a princess. So when I got pregnant, I thought this is, this is going to be the turnaround because he was really happy. I was about four months along when we got into an argument and he yeah, you know, I had ended up on the floor at one point, and I got up off the floor. He he was kicking me pretty hard. Oof. I managed to make it up off the floor, and when I stood up, he threw me on the bed and and went at my stomach like it was a punching bag. Oh, and I knew at that moment, oh, um, I could barely breathe. I could barely speak. I couldn't look at. I mean, I. I was completely 100% shattered, broken. And I said to him, if anything ever happens to this baby, I will never forgive you. About two weeks went by. Actually, yeah, it was about two weeks went by. I knew. I knew. I could feel it. I knew I wasn't pregnant anymore. It's like I felt leave. (sighs) And we were at a friend's house. We like to play poker a lot, like to socialize with his friends a lot. And we were at uh, we were at his friend's house playing poker, and I started bleeding really heavy. And he rushed me to the hospital, and we found out that the the baby was no longer no longer had a heartbeat. And we were scheduled to go in the next morning for a DNC. And before that happened. The, the, the doctor told me if it if you do miscarry at home before the DNC in the morning to save it and bring it in so we can test it and see what happened. Oh, wow. And I had miscarried that night at the house or at the apartment. And I asked him to go into the bathroom and, and save it, you know, to to put it in to put the baby in something so that the we could take it to the hospital so they could test it. And I went into the bedroom and uh, the separate uh, guest bedroom and I fell asleep, cried myself to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and realized he did not save the baby. He actually flushed it down the toilet. Oh man. Yeah. So I was, that was 22 years ago. Um, and I just shared that story with my father last year. 
So I held on to that for 21 years, even into my sobriety. I had shared it with one or two friends throughout the years, one or two. That was it. But after that had happened, I left him. And, you know, it took me a couple of weeks because I was really just a walking shell of a person for a couple of weeks. I ended up leaving him. Uh, he went after me again and I called the cops. It was on a Thanksgiving, two weeks after I lost the baby and he went to jail. Nobody knew, still nobody knew about the incident with the baby. I, I think I was protecting him still. And after that, I, after I left him and, and got out of that relationship, I, I started drinking pretty heavy. Absolutely. You know, I was only a social drinker at that point and I didn't drink that much. You know, we did when we had friends over and went places, but I started to numb the pain with alcohol and then I got a bartending job and well, okay, now it's alcohol all day, every day for free. Even when I wasn't working, I was up there hanging out with friends and, and I just really kept pushing it back. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to deal with it. And that was my way of coping. But I got into a relationship. This is when I met, I met my daughter's father, uh, about a year after that. And he was similar to this man in a lot of ways, even looked like him. As sick as it sounds, I actually picked a person who looked like him. Doesn't make and sense, though. It, it, well, you know, it, it is. And it, it definitely was. It definitely was a pattern. And I, even though I, I love this new man, uh, the similarities were frightening. And not only that, he was a man. And I kept my distance. I had so many walls built up. There was no, no getting close to me. And my drinking became a problem in the relationship. Even he was a heavy drinker too, but he, he would get to a point to where he'd like, okay, we need to quit. And he'd quit and I'd keep drinking and I'd hide it. And this would go on for months. I'd hide it all over the place thinking I had him fooled. Well, I ended up getting pregnant with him and I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. Of course. Absolutely. I was. I, I, it's, it's almost like I shut him out, you know, of even, you know, we were living together at the time and I, and I shut him out and I kept my distance and I, I wasn't drinking, you know, once I found out I was pregnant, but I really, uh, it was hard to look at him. I, I was just terrified. And he knew nothing of the past relationship. He did. Oh, he did. He, yes, he did. He did. Now, I don't recall if I ever told him the extent of it or not. If I ever told him that part of the story, I may have, I, I, I don't think I did, but he knew that he was abusive. He knew that it ended because of physical abuse. Our relationship ended when I was, this relationship ended when I was three months pregnant with my daughter and I stayed sober throughout her pregnancy, except one time. Fourth uh, of July, I was up north with my sister and her husband and their family, and everybody was drinking. And I was about well, July. She was born in September, so I was about six months along, seven months along. And I went into the cabin by myself to go to the bathroom, and I went into the fridge and grabbed a beer. And I thought just one, just one. I just want one. It's 
the, the taste and it's cold and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I drank it. And I think I drank that and, and I didn't stop and take a breath. Mm. It went down so fast. And then I opened up another one and I drank another one. So after my, the, the second beer and I really drank them in a, in a matter of two minutes because I was afraid somebody was going to come in and catch me. I went into the bathroom and I was scared as hell. I was terrified because I, I knew right then how, how big the problem was because now I'm, I'm putting my daughter's life in danger and she's not even born yet. And I didn't drink again for the rest of the pregnancy, but I did end up drinking uh, fairly quickly after she was born. As a matter of fact, I the day after she was delivered, a couple relatives of mine brought me up at the hospital. They brought me a gift, and it was a fifth of vodka. And I said, well, hell, why not? Let's start now. And I opened it up and and made us drinks and mine was one of them and it was pretty damn strong. And I drank it right there in the hospital the day after the morning after she was born, the day after she was born. And it didn't sit well in my stomach, but I liked it. And I went outside and smoked a cigarette and, and I knew I was in trouble. Oh yeah. I knew I was in trouble. I got back together with her father a couple days after she was born. I called him to tell him and invite him to come meet her. And he did. And he really never left after that. We were together for about a year and a half. And it's still the relationship just was not going to work. I was not healed yet. I'd never went through any type of healing process. He had his own demons and issues to deal with. And the drinking was a big problem, a huge problem. As a matter of fact, the day he moved out of the house, he had put, he had pulled out all the bottles that I hid around the house that I thought were hidden around the house. And he set them up on the kitchen table, which was a nice size kitchen table. (laughs) And the bottles covered it. Yeah. Literally covered it. I still couldn't quit. I moved out of the house too, and my daughter and I moved into an apartment for a while, and there's where I got my second DUI. My first DUI came after I, after the first relationship ended. The second DUI came after this one ended, and still I refused to get help or try to stop because those DUIs were not my fault, of course. No. You know, that cop was just looking for someone to pull over. <laughs> uh, the guy in my car shouldn't have opened up the passenger door and puked on the road in the middle of a harbor. <laughs> you know, uh, gosh, he should have known there was a cop car behind us, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, huge denial. Huge denial. And not only, it, it, it was just wanting to still drink. I didn't want to face... Now I'm facing a lot more pain and facing a lot more of my mistakes and shame and guilt and regret. And nobody wants to look at that shit. So I continued to drink. But I was very I was still successful. Oh, I was a functioning alcoholic. I, I took care of my daughter and I very well. I was in the mortgage business for years, for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I provided for us very well. You know, we we very we rarely went without anything that I wanted for us. 
and I bought a brand new condo. It was on a golf course. It was beautiful. I picked everything out, you know, I mean, it was brand new. The complex had just went up and I was buying new cars and I was buying, buying us clothes all the time and still unhappy. And I kept trying to curb that drinking. Fucking mortgage business. I'll tell you what, that business, that business, I was in the mortgage business and drinking and smoking and partying were part of the business. Yes. That was part (laughs) of the business. That was part of the package. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, I, I didn't have any problem providing for us, but I was still, I was still empty. I was still very empty to where I, you know, it would be those moments where, oh, when I get this car, I'm going to be happy. Or when I get this condo, I'm going to be happy. Or when I make this much money, I'll be happy. It, I remember moving into the condo and, you, you know, I was so excited. I couldn't wait and we'd drive by it all the time. My daughter was like five, four or five at the time. And we'd drive by it and watch the progress and I couldn't wait to move in. And at this point, I had dropped liquor. I, w- I wasn't drinking liquor anymore. I switched to beer because I thought, <laughs> you know, I'll really be able to. Control to, that. You know, control it. Yeah, I was drinking. I remember waking up and finding 16 cans of beer on the kitchen counter and wondering who the hell came over and drank with me. And no one did. It was me. And I couldn't figure out why I was gaining weight. And I even had a, a breathalyzer on my car. Oh, and what I would do was I would sit down in front of a computer at night and type in like the blood alcohol content calculators, like with my body weight. And with me being female, how many beers can I have till this wears off so I can blow in my car and start it in the morning? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I had it down to a science. Never failed one. Man, and, you and, might be an alcoholic if. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And, oh, I had it down. I had it down. So, actually, one time I did fail and I had a landscaper blowing it for me and I got to work before it went off again because <laughs> it worked on the corner. And he didn't speak English either, so I had to like I had to like show him how to do it, and he looked so confused and in like whatever. He's like, "I'll do it if you just quit trying to scream at me because I can't, I don't understand your language." Priceless. So yeah, we we do we we do anything, wow. and then so I remember sitting in the condo once. I was like a week into our first our first week living there and I was sitting on the couch and by this time I'd switched to wine because I hated wine, absolutely hated wine. And I thought, well, I'll drink less then. Okay. <laughs> I just had worse hangovers because wine hangovers suck. And I remember sitting on the couch and, and just bawling my eyes out because I still wasn't happy. Nothing was making me happy and I still couldn't not drink. You know, I I always told myself, you know, I'll quit when she's three, I'll quit when she's four, I'll quit when she's five, I'll quit when she's six. And about six months before my third DUI, I was was done. I was so desperate. And I couldn't go to my family for help because I had hid it from them for so long since the last DUI. I had hid from them how bad I still was and how much worse I was getting. About six months into it, six months before my third DUI, I called my father, and my father and I are very close, and I called him, and my intent was to ask him for help, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was too ashamed. 
May 8th, 2008, I was at work in the mortgage business and I never drank during the afternoon unless there was like a big pool party going on or, or things like that. Or if I didn't have my daughter and a bunch of us were hanging out at the pool at the condo complex, I wasn't an afternoon drinker and I rarely ever, ever, ever left the office for lunch. But one day a friend comes in who's actually in the mortgage business too. And then another friend and before you know it, we're all going to TGIFs and I'm ordering like the beer that you would, the beer that you would get on spring break, you know, that might as well come with, you know, the hose <laughs> just tip me upside down. They were that tall <laughs> and I drank three of them, which was a lot of beer. They were, they were, they were the tall ones. We went back to the office and my boss had a fifth of uh, Jack Daniels. Oh, in his office. He never drank during work either, but here comes Natalie, ready to drink some more. So I got back to the office and I don't recall what time we got back there, maybe about two or three. And I only worked till five. And I opened up a bottle and started pouring everybody some drinks, which was only a few people left there, but they didn't get as much as I did. I poured mine really strong. I mean, like splash of Coke strong. And about... It was almost six o'clock and I had to pick my daughter up from the after school program. She was eight years old at the time and it was about two miles away. And my condo was about three blocks from her school. I knew I shouldn't pick her up. I knew I was drunk. And actually at this point, Owen, no one will, no one rarely believes me and that's okay. From my second DUI to my third, I didn't drink and drive. I drank at home. I like to drink at home and I like to drink alone. And I, I, kept, I kept people at a distance. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into relationships. You know, I didn't go out. I rarely ever had a sitter for, her. I liked drinking by myself and in the comfort of my own home. Yeah. But this day I didn't. And <clears throat> I uh, called a friend of mine who had just left. He actually lived in the same condo complex. He was at lunch with us. And I, he had just left, and I kept calling him to come back and get me, and I couldn't get through to him. Turns out he was on the phone with one of his his uh, ed supervisors. So I started panicking because it's almost 6 o'clock, and I got to be there. So I left. I went and picked her up, and I left the parking lot. I remember wondering why the staff didn't say anything to me about my breath because I knew or how I was walking, or what I looked like, because I knew I was a mess. I put my daughter in the passenger seat in the front. Another mistake. Yeah. We don't think when we're when we're drinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm pulling out of the parking lot, and I'm I'm going to turn right to go home, which is only a couple blocks away. And she tells me she's got something for me, and she hands me this book she made me, this little handmade book, a card that was a couple pages deep for Mother's Day. Mother's Day was only a couple of days away and she couldn't wait to give it to me. Mm. So I'm looking down at it and I'm telling her how much I love her and how awesome it is. And she says, can we go to White Castle? She, she, she's been manipulating me since she came out of the womb. So <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, I'll let her when it's convenient for me because I didn't want to go home and make dinner drunk. Plus White Castle when you're drinking is the bomb. I know, right? <laughs> I'm like thinking snack time and then bedtime. So I take a left and I get to White Castle, which was about maybe a half a mile down the road. And I'm, I'm ordering 
And as I'm ordering, an officer comes up to the window and he backs up. He's like, yeah, I remember he, he said a couple swear words and, uh, he's like, I could, I could smell you from, from my car. Oh man. He called for backup and they, they had me try to do some, some test and I completely failed. And they put the cuffs on me and put me in the back of the police car. And this is an image that will never, ever, ever leave my mind. Oh, was seeing my daughter in front of me. I'm sitting in the back of the police car and watching her talk to a police officer and bawling her eyes out. Oh, man. And she's eight years old and I'm drunk and I'm in the back of a car and there's not a damn thing I can do about it. Nope. The next morning I woke up, you know, there's bits and pieces I remember from that night. I remember actually quite a bit from that night, you know, in the cell and, and going through a lot of stuff. And uh, the next morning I woke up, afternoon I woke up, and I didn't want to leave the cell. I didn't want to leave. Her father had hired an attorney for me. Mm. The attorney showed up. Uh, he actually was the attorney who represented me on my other cases. He knew me quite well at this point. Oh, man. And he showed up and he told me people were out in the, I had family and people out in the waiting room waiting for me and I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I, I knew at this point, of course, it was my third DUI. Uh, the officer was telling me the officer was throwing paper at me through the, through the window or the little slot there telling me it's going to be child endangerment, uh, it's going to be a felony, I'm going to lose my license for five years, telling me everything and angrily, which he had every right to do, and I didn't want to leave. I, I knew I wasn't going to see my daughter. I knew I was going to lose custody of her. And the thing is, is that's something that I feared every day since she was born. Oh, I feared losing my daughter to my addiction to alcohol, and I did. That fear every day it's I'm telling you, you, you what you think about you bring about and mm. but I didn't want to leave I didn't want to leave the cell it was comfortable there it was dark it felt like home and I didn't want to face anybody I didn't want to come out I didn't want to face my family I didn't want to face my daughter I didn't want to face anyone I was planning my death wow. I was going to commit suicide when I got out and I remember coming out I, 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 they released me and I hung around in the bathroom as long as I could until they kicked me out. They're like, you can't stay here anymore. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, I went out in the waiting room and my father came up to me and, and hugged me with such a, my father has been with me every step of the way through everything I've been in in my life. And I remember he told me after my second DUI, he said, you pull this shit again. I'm not going to be there for you. So I was actually surprised he was there, but right. I, because he's the man that he is, he walked up to me and he hugged me with such force and he pressed his face up against mine and he goes, say it, just say it. And that was the first time in my life I'd ever said I'm an alcoholic. Oh, wow. That was the first time ever. And I, and this was 15 years, 15 years I drank, 15 years I drank my life away. And that was the first time I ever admitted it. From there on, it was recovery time. It was time to get moving. I actually, I went home that night. He wouldn't leave me alone. He knew. <laughs> he knew. He Well, it wasn't because he thought I would drink. He he could tell by looking at me. He knew I 
I was planning to kill myself. He's seen the emptiness in my eyes. He's seen how lost I was. He's seen how broken I was. And he watched me like a hawk. He wouldn't leave my side. And the first night I stayed home alone, the first night I was allowed without a babysitter, I had that choice. And I had the pills next to me on the bed or on the nightstand. And it was not a difficult choice to make because I pictured my daughter speaking to those police officers. And at first I kept thinking, she'll, she'll never love me. She'll never forgive me. She'll hate me for the rest of her life. I won't have a relationship with her. Uh, nobody's ever going to want me. I'm going to go to prison anyway, blah, 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 blah. And then I thought, whatever, maybe we'll have a relationship in 10 years. Maybe we'll have a relationship in 15. I'm not going out like this. So the moment I decided that I wasn't going to do it, it was get moving, get working, get working on yourself. And every day since then I did. I was always a part of her life. I stayed close. I had never, I didn't have a license for five years. And luckily a man came into my life that, uh, not my husband now, but somebody prior to him came into my life and really, really helped me along in, in a lot of ways. And I moved out to where my daughter was living with her father, uh, really kind of like right around the corner. Uh, they didn't like that too much, but hey, you know, I could walk. Yep. Go see her. And things just started falling into place and kept falling into place. And I kept fighting for more time and kept fighting for more time and never gave up on her. She wanted to live with me the whole time. She wanted to come back to me the whole time. But it's a journey and it's a long road. And I couldn't, I would not allow myself to, I did for a couple of weeks. Don't get me wrong. I did for actually a couple of months. I went back on the what if and I shouldn't have did this and I shouldn't have did that. And that got old real quick because that don't change shit. Nope. All that did was stop me from moving on and becoming the person that I am today and and be, being a better mother for her, being a mother that she deserves to have. So I really continue to to work on me and work on really one moment at a time. I would not look any further ever than one moment at a time. And it wasn't just on the not drinking. It was on the pressures of how am I going to get here? How am I going to get there? Where am I going to work? What's the future going to look like for me and my daughter? Will I ever get more time with her? I couldn't play those games in my head. I wouldn't allow myself to go there. And it really brought me so much peace in the beginning. There was no other way for me to get through it. I mean, here here I would drink. I would drink if if I had a bad hair day and I got to go through all of this mess sober. I have to go through... All of this new pain that not only I caused myself, but that I caused my daughter. Yeah. I have to deal with all of that, all of this sober. So that was my main focus for years. And I eventually um, got custody of her back. 100%. 100% full legal custody. I had been to court so many times. Oh, I drafted the final document and the court accepted it. Wow. Yeah. And it's it was what she wanted. And it's funny because if you would have asked me in the very beginning, you know, keep in mind, I'm dealing with an ex. I'm dealing with his wife who was not fun at all. Okay. I wanted to kill her. I wanted to kill her at one point. Literally kill her. When I get my daughter, when I got my daughter back a couple of years ago, you would think that I would have been like, let's rub this in some faces. That's not me. No, nobody wins in this situation. If no. you would have asked me 
seven years ago? Oh yeah, I would have put some billboards up in her in her lawn. But <laughs> you grow, you know. Yes, yes. You grow, you grow, and you learn. And it's not about us. It's not about the adults. It's not about us. It's about the children. It's always, 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 always about the children. And that's one thing that my daughter thanked me for when she was 10. She said, thank you for never being that person, you know, to talk bad about the others. And how could I for one shit? You know, (laughs) (laughs) what what am I going to say? I mean, I I topped it. You know, I got the A list. I got the A plus on the on the parent you're the really the failure at everything uh, at one point in life. So there there wasn't anything I could say anyway that that would make an impact. Right. It's it's constantly learning. It, it's constantly growing. And once I got her back, it was time for deeper work. In that deeper work, I met is what we were where we were at in the beginning. Well, who am I? Who am I? I'm not just you know you know I. I it's funny because a lot of people that I helped in recovery and still now uh, always ask me or they say, well, where am I going to work with a misdemeanor on my record? Or where am I going to work with a DUI on my record? Are you kidding me? I'm laughing. I'm like, okay, you're talking to a twice convicted felon, three DUIs. Uh, let's see, I had a fleeing and a looting. I had so many things. My record's like a CVS receipt. <laughs> I... I had, I have so much shit on my record and you're in, and, and on top of it, I worked at two law firms since then. I worked at the largest advertising company in our country. They even sent me to Cabo last year. Last March, I was in Cabo nice. because I was one of their top producers and I'm making almost six figures. Don't you dare tell me you can't get a job because of your record. Because it's who you are now. I walked into those jobs. I sold them who I am, not my record. I didn't hide it. You know, I checked the little box. If they would have had, you know, a box where I could check felony twice, I would have. I just checked it once. So you're not your past. You are, you are who you are now. Yeah. And I would never let that define me. But here's the thing is what I wanted to get to. I was still lost. Okay, well, great. I'm moving on. Life is great. I've, I've met my, my husband. I got married uh, at 38 years old, never been married before, never wanted to get married. I didn't even want relationship, nonetheless, get married. So here I am married. I have, I have a wonderful husband. I have my daughter. You know, I, I have everything I want and I'm still not happy. What was making me not happy? I, I didn't know who I was. I still didn't know who I was. And that's where that the last summer came in. I can't have all this and not help people. It's, this is what sits right with me. This is what, like that light up in your face you got when you heard that pie or thought about doing the podcast. That was it. This is my journey. This is what it was all for. It's got to be for something, right? Right. Absolutely. And that's where I am today. Oh, my God. Natalie Culkin's Roundtree, ladies and gentlemen. What a story. Goodness gracious. I mean, it's just powerful. There's so much. I felt like I just went through an entire roller coaster ride with you. And, mm. and you know what? It's funny because you threw some other stuff in there and, and it's so condensed. There's so much more. There's so much 15 years of absolute just chaos. 
And I get it. I get it. I totally get it. I can totally relate. Um, and you know, I've got other questions for you, but first of all, here's what I've been, I was hoping that you were going to get to it. Where is that turning point from? You have the first abusive relationship that was just horrific. Then you mm-hmm. get into the other relationship where it wasn't an abusive relationship, but you were so damaged from the previous relationship that you couldn't have right. an actual relationship with this man. Then your alcoholism takes you to, you know, unmentionable bottom, this, this horrific bottom with, I can just picture your daughter outside the police car. And then you get sober. Where, where does a transition happen where you're able to finally have a relationship with your current husband? It, we're talking six years of work went into working on me before I was able to be in a relationship six years. And it came down to really, again, going back to looking at all the things that I contributed to, to my mess that I created, what all the things that I had done wrong, said wrong, how I acted wrong, how I, I wasted so many years putting up walls instead of working through them. Right. And trust me, that relationship that I was in before I met my husband, that was kind of like a trial, you know, prepared me for the real thing. And that's okay. That was like a practice relationship. And it wasn't intended to be so. It just happened to be that. But it was very hard for me to even allow him at first to do things for me because I was so independent and stubborn. And, but at the same time, I was also so humbled, very humbled. So the fact that someone would at the time, you know, this is five years ago, someone would want to be with me. I've been through all this. This is who I am. I don't even have my own child. I I lost everything. Who would want to be with me? And here comes someone making me feel worthy again when I felt given up. When I felt like I was nothing because I had everything that I was attached to, the the job, the vehicle, my, my dog, I lost it all. What else did I have? So I was forced to look inside. Well, there's no question about it because there's women that are currently going through this, that this has happened to them where they have taken the wrong turn somewhere, ended up in a really abusive relationship and haven't found a way to forgive themselves, haven't mm-hmm. found a way to not take it as uh, introspectively as they had something to do with it. But at the same time, once it does happen, then it is your responsibility to do the work to heal. Yes. To, to not I, only protect yourself and get out, but to heal afterwards. Correct. And, and that's what we, we have to really, really, really stress the importance of no matter what we do or what we say, no, it's not okay. It's not okay. 
you know, I'm a, I'm a feisty little critter. And, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, yeah, I did, you know, push his buttons. Uh, did I ever lay a hand on him? No. Did I ever say anything to make him feel bad about himself? No. So what I did was I, I, I really realized over time that this was this own man's insecurity. This yeah. was his own lack of self-worth Yeah, that made him do that. But you, you don't see that when you're in it. But at least give yourself the opportunity to get out of it, to look at it from a clearer perspective. Because once, once you, once you're out of it and you heal and the healing will take different time for different people. It took years for me. But once I was able to look back and say, Oh, you know what? He was the weak one. He was the insecure one. He was the one who felt like he was going to lose everything. You, you can't blame yourself for not seeing it when you're in it. I loved him. Shit, I still loved him after. Right. I still seen him a few times after, after we separated and we're living apart. That's what love do, does to you. It blinds you. It, it, well, no, love doesn't blind you. Pain, that, that pain does that to you. Yes. But it's always about them. Yeah. Just like bullies or people who are negative to you or people who say bad things about you in any way, shape or form, anybody who treats you wrong, it's about them. That's true. not you. Yeah. And if they don't, yeah. And if they don't change bye, bye. I, I, I cut people out so quickly. I don't stick around. I don't stick around for negativity. I don't stick around for, for games, nothing. It's not worth it. I, I'm, I'm here in this human experience for a short time. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, you know, so, and that's what it is, is it's, it's growing and learning and just building your self-worth back up and, and, and not looking back and not beating yourself up. What, what for? Yeah. yeah what no. for you, you were in it. It happened. It hurt. You heal and you move forward. Yeah. It takes time. Well, I think that's a tough part too. It's just that there's that overnight or that, that that sense of being so lost that you just feel overwhelmed with the thought of even going through the process of healing. And then on top of that, it's like, where do I begin? Where do I start? How do I do this? Mm-hmm. And for many of us, thank God we were alcoholics. Right. Be- because for so many, the only other option is to go to therapy. And for people that can't afford it or don't know, you know, being able to trust someone that again, putting their trust in someone else. Exactly. Like how difficult is it to do that? Yes. And and it's very, very hard to open up to people find it very hard to not only open up to a stranger, but somebody who hasn't been through it. Right. I, I, I was ordered to therapy. I was ordered to do, I, I was in outpatient. I was in AA. I had to go to counseling. I had to do everything. Oh, and I would still find myself on the weekends going to the bookstore, basically on my, practically on my hands and knees, looking for a book written by a woman that had been through all of this same shit that I had been through. Yeah. Just so I had someone to familiarize myself with, just so I had someone who can tell me, yes, I did all this too, and you're going to be okay. And I didn't have that. That's the person I'm going to be for people out there now. Yes. And you don't have to go as deep as I did. You don't have to get the two felonies. You don't have to get the three DUIs. Here's, <laughs> um, you know, it's, we, we need someone who's been through it. And it's hard to trust people. And who more, who can you trust more than somebody who's going to say, uh, 
uh-huh, did that. Yep. Uh, here I am. I'm going to be vulnerable so I can show you, so I can help you. And, and that's what we do for each other. That's where vulnerability is very powerful and very beautiful in the way that people help each other heal. And we cannot, like you said, well, we start thinking, where do I start? What do I do? Where do I start? You can't. You can't do that to yourself. Well, where am I going to start? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? You just keep taking one step forward. As long as you're still moving in the right direction, don't rush yourself. Don't rush yourself. Well, the good news is that, that there's so much information now. You get on Google and you type in whatever's going on in your life and answers come. And there's just no question about it. the internet is right. loaded with information yes. and ultimately it's going to guide you to a support group because really you need a support group of like-minded people, women that have been through this same situation. Uh, if you're a man, men that have been through this situation, you need to be able to connect with people that have felt the same pain and have been lost in the same forest that you have been lost in. And yes. that's the most important thing. And and there's no question about it, Natalie. Your story for women out there, there's so much about your story, about being abused, about being a mother, about losing a child. It's just, the, the, it's just a gamut, a list, a laundry list of things where, well, you don't understand. Well, try me. I probably do. So why don't we yeah. tell the listeners... You know, how they can reach out to you, how to find you, your website, your videos, you know, how do we get a hold of you? My website is soberlivingsoulfulliving.com and my Facebook is facebook.com soberlivingsoulfulliving and those are the best two routes to reach me and on my website you can find other avenues to reach me as well. All right. So, so okay. So for more information, get a hold yeah. of Natalie at her website. Guys, go to the show notes. Her website will be there. The Facebook page will be there. She's also on Twitter. Well, her Twitter information will be on there. So you guys can easily get a hold of Natalie. Awesome. Perfect. All right. So let's close up here real quick. I'm going to ask you a few questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with insightful and inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, excellent. Now, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? What was keeping me when I first got introduced to recovery? Mm-hmm. I still wanted to drink. The fear of living without alcohol outweighed the fear of living with it. I didn't know who I was without it. I didn't know who I, who I was without it. And it I knew it was a necessity. Uh, in my life for me to be, to, for me to be the only person I knew How to be. who I was. It, it was my identity. I still had fun with it. Yeah. No, that's, that's typically, that's typically what so many of us go through, you know, that resistance to change mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. don't know what's going to come on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but the first, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? The day I left that jail cell. Yeah, right. There was no doubt. No doubt. You know, they say you either end up incarcerated or dead. I've been through the incarceration plenty of times. Jails, institutions, or death. Yes. And... Alcohol took my daughter from me. Yeah. It, it, there's no going back to the bottle after that. 
there, there, it's better on the other side. It's going to be better. It's going to be better sober. Even though I didn't believe it at the time, I had hope. That's all I, that's all you have to have. If you have enough hope that it will be better the other way, that it will be better sober, you've got something going. Absolutely. Yes. Because when, when hope replaces fear and then hope turns into believing and then believing turns into living, you never go back. You don't want to go back. You have no desire to go back and you appreciate life with every bit of being you are. So true. Beautiful. I love it. So number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Yes, I do. It's, um, it's a book by Ayana Van Zant and it's called Daily Meditations. And, uh, it's, it really goes through 365 days of the year. And it's all about uh, living right and loving yourself and claiming yourself worth back and having peace of mind. And that book helped me. I've never let it go. I used to bring it to meetings and read it to the read it at the tables. I've read it to my daughter over the years when she had problems. Um, but but I read everything. I, I read Eckhart Tolle. I read Wayne Dyer. I re- read Louise Hay. That was how I found my higher power. I love it. So, Natalie, tell me, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Don't hide in shame. Ooh, I like it. Beautiful. So then, finally, number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Love yourself every day. Make it a priority to love something about yourself every day. Wow. I'm gonna. Sh- I got to give a shout out to my good friend Brian Nino, because that's exactly how he closed his episode. He said, love, huh? "Love yourself, man." I never get tired of hearing that one. That is a fantastic, fantastic that's suggestion, great. and it's so hard. It is hard. It is hard. But once you do it, and I'm, it, once you do it without the ego, with the ego out of the way, once you do it, you just have more love to give everybody else. Natalie, what an amazing story you have. I am so glad that you have found your purpose because you are going to help thousands of women that I am sure of. No question about it. Thank you. Oh, I can only hope so. So I, I, I had a blast with you. I had a blast. So did I. And I was just blown away and inspired by your story. I appreciate it. I really do. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida, all. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.